The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This morning. We ended by summarizing what is kind of the basic irony and the romantic approach to religion, which is on the one hand, everything is totally individual. You know, it's your response to the infinite, your own particular response to the infinite that nobody else can really judge. Um, but on the other hand, that they felt that <clears throat> this kind of response obeyed certain laws, like one, it was, the issue was around what is your position vis-a-vis the infinite. Two, Based on that, you would create an artistic expression, defining yourself like a novel, as in a novel. There would be kind of a development, character development, as there would be in a novel. Um, Creating your own private poetry and mythology around your identity. Creating your own novel around your identity. Um, And that there were certain laws of the development in religious thought, that certain there would be patterns in how a religion would develop. People would take a religion that would develop to a higher sense and then finally degenerate, and then there'd be a new rebirth of a religious sense. Um, so on the one hand, it's totally individual, but on the other hand, there are these laws that this, these individual expressions would have to follow in order to count as religion. Um, particularly the idea that the religious question is, how do you refine a sen- or how do you regain a sense of oneness within yourself, with other people, with nature at large. That's the religious question for them. Um, Freedom in this is not so much freedom of choice as just the freedom to express yourself once you've been open to the infinite. Um, Any questions about any of the stuff we covered this morning before we move on? Yes, we have the mic, here's the cover. Um, it has to do with what you were just talking about. So it seems that the romantics, as you've been presenting them, focus a lot on freedom, but notably suffering is absent. So then the two questions that I have is, number one, did they have any sort of idea of suffering, or how did that figure into their plans? Well, part of being romantic was suffering. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Um, basically, okay, the number one, for them, for them, suffering was a sense of disconnectedness, of not being part of a whole, and that Somehow it was, it was always a mistake because you really are part of the whole, but you don't fully grasp your relationship to the whole. So that's how, there are how you go past suffering is learning how to overcome these sense of dualities with the idea that oneness would solve the problem. But unfortunately, oneness is never fully attainable, so you're approaching it, but that's the best you can do. And uh, the second question coming out of that is, what does freedom do in a Buddhist uh, lo- way of looking at things? Okay, from, from, from Buddhism, freedom is being able to be free from becoming and the suffering that's inherent in becoming. And you know, it's, it's attained by following a path, which actually requires that you take on certain states of becoming, i.e. states of concentration, um, that, that allow, you to, allow you to look at the process of becoming in the mind and then begin to take it apart and finally get so you can go beyond that. Right next to you. Uh, the idea of uh, your truth today may be a different truth tomorrow. Was that taken directly out of the Buddhist idea of uh, impermanence? Well, I mean for the Romantics? Or? No, they had their own sources for that. Um, the idea being that the universe is developing. They picked a lot of this up from Herder. 
You know, if there are a couple of people I would like to you know, spend a whole day on, Schiller is one, Herder is another. Herder is really fascinating. But he was the one who said, you know, the universe is evolving in ways that we can't fully comprehend. But, and so what was true for, say, the Hebrews when they wrote the Psalms may be inspiring to you, but you have to realize that things have moved on since then. And so what you try to get back to is sort of, you know, what, what, were, what experience were these things coming from so you're not taking the Psalms as the focus of your attention, but the focus is more on, you know, what, what, what sense did they have that inspired that? And that your expression of that same sense now in, the, in you know, 19th or 18th and 19th century Europe would be something different. I don't think they went from day to day, but era to era. But the Romantics started doing the day to day part. Um, one of the interesting things about Herder and his approach to the Bible you know, by putting the Bible in a historic context. When you, when you study somebody in their historical context, you can do it for one of two reasons. One is to empathize with them, and the other is to limit them. Uh, empathy is saying, well, if I were in that, that set of circumstances, I could understand how I would do the same thing that person did. That's the empathy part. The limiting part is, it was okay for him in that time, but we've moved on. And Herodot does both. Um, there was a whole issue... About the problem of Shakespeare was a big one back in those days because Shakespeare broke all the rules and yet he was a great poet. You know, Aristotle had set the rules for tragedy; it had to be you know unity of time, unity of space, and Shakespeare breaks all of them. And some people actually said that you know Shakespeare was a lousy dramatist as a result. Um, but Herodotus was the one who actually defended him, saying, "No, Shakespeare is really great. Well, why should we expect someone writing in, you know?" 16th and 16th, 17th century England to follow the, the rules that had been set up by some Grecian down in Greece, you know, many centuries before. So on the one hand, he's putting Shakespeare in his context, putting Aristotle in his context. He's putting Aristotle in his context basically to put him down. So he's not a universal rule maker. He's putting Shakespeare in his context in order to elevate him. So you can do either one with, by putting people in historical context. And we'll see that in the treatment of the Buddha as we, as we move on. Yeah. Um, did any of these thinkers have um, any insights based on like um, any type of meditative experience where like a deep samadhi where they may have just misinterpreted as a... I can imagine that you can get... You're sitting by your dead fiance's tombstone every night, <laughs> and you meditate. You know, and, I mean that's what Novalis did. So you you can gain this, and it's you know that sense of oneness is not that hard to get, and, but then you lose it very easily. And so their sense of how do you, it's, they were kind of like oneness junkies that you kept wanting to get back, <laughs> back to that sense of oneness. Either through, and they say you do it either through love. Schlegel, in particular, has a lot of things saying about how, you know, when you see your love beloved, it suddenly makes the rest of the universe beautiful as well. That sense of connectedness. Um, and the other was through art. Where you, you're in, you find some piece of art really inspiring. That gives you a sense of unity between that artist's vision, your vision, and you begin to see kind of a wholeness. There's kind of a resonance going on there. So those are the two means by which they sought. Oneness is either through contemplating art or through love. But, but they had no means then to, you know, break 
break through that. Through well, like again, the Buddha. It stays in the terms of becoming. Your sense of who you are in the universe, even if who you are dissolves into the universe, that's a, that's a state of becoming. Behind you. How do you, how do you spell? Herder. Yeah. H-E-R-D-E-R. Thank you. You know, there's certain people... Holden Caulfield has a great comment in Catch from the Rye. <laughs> when he says, you know, you know you've read a good book when, when you put it down, you'd like to pick up the phone and talk to the author. Herder's one of those guys. <laughs> it's very likable. James is another. William James is another. William James. Yeah. The one person in all this that I returned to really dislike was Hegel. You don't notice I haven't mentioned Hegel at all. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, someone writes a book in which the consummation of human history, and not only human history, universal history, is the writing of the book. Um, <laughs> you have to wonder. And that's Hegel. Yeah, it's Hegel. Okay. Any other questions? Have you read his Phenomenal Gita's Geistes? That was the book. That was the book? Yeah. You haven't read the Abhidhamma? Hmm? Have you read the Abhidhamma? No. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Can you put mic down here? I had a question about something that you um, said earlier Mm -hmm. about opening one's mind to receptiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this was an attitude of the romantics, and so I'm assuming it's a type of receptiveness to eternity. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to to take eternity out of the question, could this type of receptiveness also be applied to a type of Buddhist concentration, or would that be a completely different... Okay, I'd actually like to make the case that the way we interpret mindfulness is shaped by that idea of being receptive. Because when the Buddha is talking about being mindful, he's, mindful means actually keeping something in mind. In which case you've got a framework, i.e. the body in and of itself, or feelings, or mind states, or mental qualities. That's the framework you keep in mind. And the framework is not only the topic, but that framework contains a certain amount of duties to be done. You know, if an unskillful mind state comes up, you recognize that this is that mind state, then there's a set of duties to be done on that. So it's not... You're not being totally receptive because you've got to have a framework that you're bringing to it. But we like the idea of receptivity. In fact, I've got a passage we're going to be discussing which tries to turn the mind, turn mindfulness into a receptivity, which is more romantic, I think, than Buddhist. You can look at the book uh, Right Mindfulness. It's out on the table there. By the way, take as many books as you want so we don't leave too many at the end of the day. <laughs> I don't, we don't want to take up their space. Anything else? Okay. Let's look at a Buddhist critique of the Romantic ideas of religion. First, let's talk about what they got right. (coughs) (laughs) 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 To be fair. (laughs) Okay, they do see religion as primarily a therapy for human suffering i.e. by trying to recreate that sense of oneness 
that you're looking for. That's, you know, they define the cause of suffering as a sense of separateness, and the solution is going to be trying to attain a sense of, um, sense of oneness. But so we disagree on defining what the, you know, what the, what the problem is and what the therapy is. But in general, the idea is basically there to heal divisions and to overcome a certain sense of angst or suffering. Um, they also teach you to beware of systematizing. Now, the Buddha never gave a systematic philosophy. And he has a lot of criticisms of people who hammer out things through logic and hammer out their ideas based on logical presuppositions. Um, again, his approach is more therapeutic than systematic. Um, <clears throat> they saw properly that causality in the universe is not mechanical. There is an interplay of forces, interplay of, of conditions which allows for some freedom. And when you look at somebody's views, you should look at how they should be understood in terms of the cause and result of the psychological processes leading to that view and also um, that underlie the idea of clinging to a particular view. Why would you hold to this view? Um, now, like Hildren said, there are certain times in your life when you would want to hold to a more deterministic view and other times you'd want to hold to one that's more opens more freedom. So you're looking there not so much as the truth of the view, but as to the, you know, the psychology of why you would hold to that view. See, and what happens as a result of holding that view. Um, and the philosophy is tested to be, to be any philosophy is to be tested by being lived. When you take this on, what kind of life do you have? Now, those are the those are the areas that we have in common. Now, even within in those areas that we have in common, there are certain differences, big ones. Like again, their analysis of what suffering is is this sense of being divided, whereas the Buddha says it's clinging to becoming. And the solution would be a path that takes you beyond the becoming. Um, the idea of seeing views as a, re- as a cause and result of psychological processes, that's true, but then for them, the question of the truth or falseness of the view is totally personal, whereas the, the Buddha would say there are certain views that are you know true, certain views that are false. And so you would want to take you would look for views that are not only true, but also then beneficial. But first they have to be true. Okay. Um, their solution, which would be that if you attain a sense of oneness, uh, for Buddhism, that doesn't, for the Dharma, oneness is not the transcendent. It's still a, it's a non-dual, a non-dual state, but it is also fabricated. It's still within becoming. You know, when you take on your unity or identity with the universe, you're still stuck in becoming. So when the question of what they got wrong, first they frame everything in terms of becoming, the definition of what you are in relationship to the universe. They don't get out of that. There's, there's always trying to replace one state of becoming with a different state of becoming. Um, and they keep you attached there, that, because they don't imagine anything beyond that, that's as far as it goes. Um, also, when they talk about religion as aesthetic sensitivity and poet expression, um, for, for you know, the Buddhist instructions, is, there's not that much poetry, and there's you know a fair amount of poetry in the Pali Canon, but the essence is not in the poetry. It's in the instructions: do this, don't do that. Look at the world this way. This is right view. Look at, if you look at it that way, it's wrong view. There are specific instructions on what to do. Um, with, with one way we can take in a comparison is when they talk about the sublime in the Romantics, and they talk about Sanwega in Buddhism. The sublime is just kind of this mind-blowing sense of how big everything is, and you want to become one with it. Uh, 
and then from there the desire is to express that oneness. Whereas the, for the Buddha, Sangwege, as you look at how big the universe is and just how oppressive the processes are, the desire is, what can I do to get out? It's a different response to kind of this overall, overwhelming sense of awe. Um, because they see poetic t- religious texts are reduced to poetry and myth, then your choice of a religion has nothing to do with what's really right or wrong, but just kind of your aesthetic sense. What resonates with you, what um, ha- happens to fall in line with your ascetic preferences. Um, their historical relativism leaves no room for <coughs> eternal truths. There's nothing really eternal that you can talk about, because each person has their own se- individual truth. And the whole romantic view in- induces heedle- heed- heedlessness. In other words, saying, okay, you just have to trust that the universe is going in the right direction, you're part of it, your urge is coming up, you have to learn how to be free to express those. There's no sense of a filter, or that you could actually endanger yourself by expressing yourself. So there's a certain amount of heedlessness that's induced by all this. Um, Finally, the goal is forever beyond reach. You try to go towards oneness, but never quite get there. Um, And they always leave open the question of, in trying to go to oneness, are you going to something new, or are you trying to return to something old that was lost? And this is where the Romantics themselves get split. Some of them say, well, we're trying to return to the original unity from which everything came. And then the question is, well, why, why was it designed this way anyhow? <laughs> that we have to go through all of this in order to get back? Or is there some higher oneness that it's going to attain? They themselves argued about this quite a bit. But it leaves open the question, when you're trying, going for oneness, is it a reversion or is it something going forward? Whereas for the Buddha, okay, oneness is just one of those things you have to encounter and, you know, as you go through the world. And the question is, what do you do with it? It's not a goal in and of itself. There's, you get the sense of oneness and concentration, and the question is, what I'm going to do with this? The oneness becomes a part of the path rather than a goal in and of itself. Um, and also, if you follow the romantic view, the whole possibility of a total freedom is lost. You can never get outside of becoming, according to that. So these are some of the areas in which they're diametrically opposed. Their their solution to the problem is, from the Buddhist point of view, is not really a solution. and actually gets in the way. It leaves you limited within the range of becoming, and doesn't give you any guidance or or even open the possibility that you can get out. Um, And there's really nothing that you can hold higher than yourself. There's nothing bigger than you are. I mean, there's a universe which is big, but you can never say, okay, what it said to me yesterday is going to be the same that it says to you tomorrow. So there's no sense that there's anything bigger than your feeling about what the universe is telling you. There's nothing to measure it against. No standards. Any questions on any of those points? I'm throwing a lot of material at you here. <laughs> yes? Where's the mic? This is a, actually going back to this morning, you were talking about there was one of these people that did have um, the, the view that we should look at the whole world. Mm-hmm. So did, did this group of people have any access to studying Buddhism or any access? No. So, have, so there was no, f- no. F- feedback that way. No. Um, 
again, the whole issue, whole issue of looking at yourself in, in, in the context of the world as a whole. This is something they picked up from European philosophy. It goes way, way back. In fact, you could do an interesting history of, of European philosophy from the point of the view of Buddha, where everybody was asking the wrong questions all along, from Plato on, <laughs> or actually pre-Socratics on. Be, to be fair to them, they had no idea that there was this other other dimension. Other. Which is why I say you can't really blame them for not thinking in these other terms, but we have access to more material now. The question is, should we still carry their attitudes with us now that we have this new material coming in? So what, all they knew about Indian religion at that point was some very unreliable translations of the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. Herder, in particular, had read some of the Bhagavad Gita in Danish and English and said, wow, this is what I've been thinking about all along. So he did some German versions. And you, have, you know, they talk about the rendering of the Dhammapada. Have you ever seen that little book that's the rendering of the Dhammapada? That word, rendering. <laughs> <laughs> and so Herder did the same to the, to the Bhagavad Gita. He, said, he kind of pulled out his ideas that he could see in the Bhagavad Gita and it highlighted those. And so it was all about oneness, universal oneness, and um, the sense of constantly evolving universe. He liked that a lot. And so that was all they really had in terms of Indian religion. There was nothing, you know, the discovery of Buddhism, there, there had been reports about Buddhism, but there wasn't, wasn't really that much known about the texts. The Pali Canon hadn't been made available. If we have some extra time, I'll, there's some interesting things about the discovery of Buddhism, and I'll tell you about later. This is the fun part about studying history, is that you find these weird stories every now and then, but I'll get that to later. Question over here. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. So in, in reading Buddhist texts, it seems Buddhist texts are often very psychological in that they are concerned with analysis of habits, mm-hmm. identifying habits, changing habits. Um, and in the romantic material that you're, you've been talking about today, is there any of that in there? There's actually quite a lot. We talk about psychological development. You're talking about people's habits and how they change. And for them, the best way to change is to open yourself up to a larger and larger perspective on the world. And that's how you do it, basically. And so then there's a kind of a magical dissolution of habits you don't want? That you, yeah. It, it can happen, yeah. You have mm-hmm. this, these sudden insights that say, wow, and I, you know, this, I will never be the same ever mm-hmm. again, never act yeah. the same ever again. But there's no, there's no pattern, there's no path mm-hmm. that would tell you exactly how to do that. Will you be coming back to the idea of no sense of filter, that there is a heedlessness? Because I, I, I know I'm going to go and wonder what you talked about there. Okay, um, the idea being that when you open yourself up to the infinite, open yourself up to the sense of oneness, that what sort of automatically comes up within you as an expression of that is to be trusted. 
Keats, who you know was basically alive at the same time as the German Romantics, was talking about has you know where where I have it, some quote where he says the only thing I know that is holy is um, your feelings, and then and the human imagination. Those are the two truths that he knows about. Now that doesn't give you any filter at all. The only thing that can you could learn from other people is to be more artful in your expression, of how you express that. And then the other thing that Schlegel points out is if you learn about other cultures, other times, you get a much larger view of the human enterprise. And that gives you a much larger perspective on things. But then the question of what comes out of you in response, you're not responsible. Yes, question in the back. John Keats? Mm-hmm. That can't be true. Mm-hmm. Stephen Batchelor says he's one of the true enlightened Westerners. <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> yes, over here. Can you repeat what you were saying about the sublimity of the universe being oppressive and um, um, want to get out of it? Okay, when, when, the, when the Romantics are talking about the sublime, right. they're talking about this sense of just how huge the universe is. I mean, we're talking about something totally infinite, both in terms of time and in space. And for them, that's an inspiration to create a response. Um, when the Buddha was talking about, just look how big the universe is, and he focused on how, how much suffering there is. And if the process of becoming goes on, there's really no, no reason for it to end, unless you decide to end it yourself. So the sense that it, this, even though it's big, it's not big in the sense of giving you wide space, it's big in the sense of being enormously oppressive. So it's, it's two very different responses. Much as I like Keats, by the way. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. Um, Next question is, what happened to the Romantics? Um, Of the five that we were talking about, one died within two years after the kind of the Romantic, as, as I said, we're talking about 1797 to 183. The reason 183 was the outside limit was because Schlegel lost his position as a professor at the university because of his affair with Dorothea. Schelling lost his position um, for a similar reason. It's, it's one of those great stories, you, know, you read history and you say, good Lord, it's, it's, it's bigger than a novel. Um, <laughs> it starts with Caroline McKellis who was married off to this um, doctor named Burma, whom she didn't love, but she did have a baby by him, daughter, Augusta. Augusta. Um, fortunately for her, her husband, whom she did not love, passed away. Uh, she goes running off to Mainz. Now, Mainz at that time was, had been conquered by the French during the French Revolution, and she joins the Jacobins, you know, the far left wing of the French Revolution, 
has an affair with a French military officer, gets pregnant. Mainz gets recaptured by the Germans. She gets thrown into prison for being a Jacobin. Schlegel's brother, August, hears about her, apparently knew about her before, and so he, go, he marries her to get her out of jail. She comes, so she comes and lives in Jena with a group, and she's part of that group that sits around and enjoys some philosophy for all the time. Her daughter by that time is old enough to marry off, so Schelling um, asks for her hand in marriage. Um, she, however, the daughter develops, I think it's diphtheria, and dies. Um, as the mother and Schelling start comforting each other over the death of Augusta. <sighs> um, they, get, they get very intimate. Um, and so she goes and tells her husband she wants a divorce. She loves Schelling more. Now, Schelling's 12 years younger than she is. Her husband's really good. He says, okay, if that's, you know, if that's your true love, we'll have a divorce. No problem. But the rest of Jena was not really good with this. Um, they accused her of having, of kill, having killed her daughter in order to get Schelling. And so on the basis of this, Schelling lost his position, and they had to go someplace else. And so one by one by one, the, the, the group kind of fell apart. Novalis dies two years later of tuberculosis. Um, Herlderen, who had to go to France in order to get a job, <coughs> um, finally comes back and there's something obviously wrong with him. I've read different diagnoses of whether whether it's extreme hypochondria or whether it was schizophrenia. But eventually ends his career as an author. He lived on for another 40 years as kind of a curiosity. People would go to visit the old poet who was crazy up in the garret and he'd write a few lines of verses but it was all pretty much doggerel. Um, it's very sad. You read his lives and it gets really sad. Schlegel and Schelling, however, live on. Um, Schleiermacher lives on. They ended up repudiating everything they wrote when they were young. And by that time, however, the cow was out of the barn. In other words, these books were out there. We're talking about the beginning of popular print culture, when it was very easy for young people to put their writings down and get them out to the world at large. And so the books took on a life of their own. And in taking on a life of their own, they not only traveled around Europe, but they also came to America. And as I was mentioning earlier, Emerson picked up a lot of his ideas from Schelling and Schleiermacher in particular. And it's through Emerson that we learned a lot of these ideas about how your, your personal religion is your personal religion and no one can tell you anything else. That it comes from your openness to the influences around you, especially the influences of nature as a whole. And that it is all about trying to regain a sense of oneness. This is what the transcendentalists were all about. From the transcendentalists, William James picked up a lot of his ideas about what religion was, was all about. Um, if you ever read the varieties of religious experience, you may remember he talks about what he calls sanctification, excuse me, um, sanctification and justification. Sanctification for him is that moment of oneness that you feel with the universe when you're open to its influences. And then justification is how you live that out in the rest of your life. Now, he borrowed these terms from, from the Methodists, as I said earlier, were related to the Pietists. But really it's just, he focuses on religion as an experience without any indication of whether you know, your expression of that is true or false, but just the fact that you, you know, have that sense of oneness. He, however, introduced the idea that the best expression of that sense of oneness would be a moral life. He picked that up also from Emerson. 
You know, Stu James, that um, a lot of these ideas came into humanistic psychology. When, when Maslow talks about peak experiences and plateau experiences, he's talking about the same thing, just giving them a scientific shape and terminology. That's one of the ways in which these, things, these thoughts got into modern Dharma. Another way is through Jung. Jung in particular was a real fan of Schiller and Herner in that branch of the Romantics. Um, another route to us came through co the comparative study of religion and mythology. When Joseph Campbell is telling you to follow your bliss, it's the Romantic message of what mythology is all about. But also the whole idea that we're, when you study religion, you want to study the religious experience and its expression as it has happened throughout the ages, without any question, without judging who's true and who's false. It's a very romantic approach to religion. And another branch through which it came to us, and this is one of the stranger ones, is actually went through India and came back. You know the pizza phenomenon? Pizza phenomenon? Where pizza comes to America and gets changed and then goes back to Italy? <laughs> well, we have the pizza phenomenon coming from India. Um, Vivekananda, studied under an English uh, lit professor and, psych and philosophy professor, learned about Spinoza and Hegel and a lot of the Romantics, especially the idea that we are all, all one and you know, we are one with God, we are one with the universe as the highest expression of religion. And that was influential in forming what becomes Neo-Vedanta in India, which then gets exported back here as part of the perennial philosophy. Being the idea being that there are certain perennial truths that are found in all religions, that they're all the same. I think this is really fascinating. That, you know, what we think of as Hinduism, scholars more recently have said, you know, there is no such thing as Hinduism. The word wasn't used until 1814. Um, in response to the idea that there was one essence to all those different Indian religions. And it was found in the Vedanta, or in the Vedas, or Advaita, Advaita Vedanta. But part of the perennial philosophy is the idea that the religious question is, what is your nature of your true self in relationship to the world? And the answer always is, we're one. So this is all coming back to us through these different channels. So this is how a lot of this stuff got in. And the book that I'm going to be writing on this topic, I'll be going a lot more detail on that particular history of how these things came here. What I'd like to do now is, we've got two more steps before we're done for the day. And the first one is to go through some statements about modern examples of what Buddhist Romanticism would be, and to be able to see how we can identify what the Romantic strains within these statements are. First, before we go through the content, I'd like to talk a little bit about the style. Almost, how many Dharma books have you read recently, which are not so much about Dharma, but they're people telling their life story. There's a lot of that. It's kind of a novelistic approach to the spiritual life, um, which again comes from, from the Romantics, that you, your life is basically a novel. Now part of this is encouraged by, by editors um, and magazines and editors of books. Tell us your story. We don't want to hear about all this abstract stuff. We want to hear the story. Um, another part of the style is quotes from all kinds of religious traditions. You know, Rumi has become the Buddhist poet laureate, you know, <laughs> as has Mary Oliver. <laughs> um, 
the idea, okay, that all religious traditions are talking about the same thing. That's how they get introduced into this. Here, what, what the Buddha would call training and bombast. I mean, you can listen to a lot of Dharma talks and they sound really beautiful, but if you stop and ask him, what do you mean? They're not going to answer. Okay, that's part of the, the style. In terms of content, let me read you a couple passages. Here's one on oneness. We create prisons, projections, self-limitations. Meditation teaches us to let them go and recognize our true nature. Completeness, integration, and connectedness. In touch with our wholeness, there is no such thing as a stranger, not in ourselves or in others. The fundamental error of separateness is accompanied by fear, alienation, feelings of fragmentation. The desire for happiness is a yearning for union. Now, the last one there is Plato. That's the Platonic element in the Romantics. And the fact that we, you know, Meditation is what is letting go of our sense of being cut off and recognizing our true nature, completeness, integration, and connectedness. Now again, that's, that's offering as the solution to the problem how to gain a sense of connectedness and oneness. There's nothing about going beyond becoming. There's nothing about anything that's outside of time and space. Here's a passage on imminence and receptivity. Just as a waiter attends to the needs of those at the table he serves, so one waits with unknowing astonishment at the quixotic play of life. Okay. Just as a waiter attends to the needs of those at the table he serves, so one waits with unknowing astonishment at the quixotic play of life. You know, the first reaction is, this guy has never waited tables. <laughs> <laughs> Just as an aside, there was that wonderful article in the New Yorker a couple of years back. It starts out by a quote from Sartre, which is really impenetrable. You know. And at the, after, the article, after the quote, it says, now there are three ways you can respond to this. One, and it gives you kind of a, a kind of responding to Sartre on his own terms, you know, is, is the ex- existential imperative such and such, or is it something else? Um, the second response is, boy, they sure don't make public intellectuals like they used to anymore. <laughs> and the third one is, what was he on? <laughs> and it turns out number three is the correct one because he was on something. <laughs> so to get back to this question, <clears throat> just as a waiter attends to the needs of those at the table he serves, so one waits with unknowing astonishment at the quixotic play of life. In subordinating his own ones to those of the customer, a waiter abandons any expectation of what he may be called to, next to do. Next call to do. Constantly alert and ready to respond, the oddest request does not phase him. Neither ignores those he serves nor appears at the wrong time. Okay. He is invisible but always there when needed. <laughs> I waited tables for years. I can tell you this is not what it's like. <laughs> Likewise, in asking what is this thing, one does not strain ahead of oneself in anticipation of a result. One waits at ease for a response one cannot foresee and that might never come. The most one can do, in quotes, is remain optimally receptive and alert. He's talking about you know, being open and receptive to all things. Okay. We hate waiting. Rather than things happening according to plan, we're suddenly at the mercy of someone else and powerless to influence the outcome of events. As the consoling illusion of a dependable and manageable world evaporates with each passing second, 
we're exposed to the anguish of life's intrinsic unreliability. Our impatience mounts, the self's composure crumbles into resentful frustration or erupts into panic, and we're exposed as an infantile creature of Mara. Instead of regarding it either as an affront to one's dignity or a waste of time, waiting can be seen as a cipher of nirvana. Since life is ultimately a situation over which we have no control, waiting is a response that accords with its fleeting and unreliable nature. The practice of waiting is to learn how to rest in the nirvanic ease of contingent things. Okay, now there's a conflict right there. One paragraph ahead it was, you know, anguish of life's intrinsic unreliability, and then it becomes nirvanic ease. Um, yet waiting is not passive inaction any more than emptiness is nothingness. As an alert stillness that cradles perplexity, it is the ground from which we can respond in unpredictable ways to life's unfolding and inevitable encounter with others. Okay, now do you see that? That's really romantic. One, the idea that you can never know what to expect. Two, all you can do is be receptive, but being receptive is not passive, it will bring forth this creative response. Now the inherent strain there is on the one hand, the fact that everything is changing all the time is a cause of anguish. And yet in the next paragraph it becomes the nirvanic ease into which you rest. Okay, it's keeping you in becoming and doesn't open up any opportunity outside. Yes. Microphone. It seems to me it seems to me that one of the problems here is that of context, which is if some of these statements that you just read, the last one especially, were presented within an informed Buddhist culture, people would turn around and say, Are you crazy? No. That's nonsense. But in this context, it's like, oh, fine. Yeah. Well, again, that, this tells you a lot about the fact that we are living in a romantic universe. And this kind of, this kind of prose makes sense within the romantic context. But looking at this as you're just waiting for whatever's going to come up and not knowing how you're going to respond. I mean, for Buddha, that's leaving you defenseless. You know, I made this point the other night at the talk on, on Monday, which is that the Buddha felt that one of the duties of a teacher is to give you protection which doesn't mean that he's going to you know, cross the road ahead of you and pull out the stop sign so you can cross the road. He's basically giving you advice on how to look at difficult situations and analyze them in a way so you can find a resp- the proper response. So he gives you a framework, i.e. the Four Noble Truths, appropriate attention. And that, that carries certain duties with it. You're going to look for the problem of suffering and then Try to comprehend it so you can see what's causing it and then what you can do to put an end to it. That's giving you a sense of priorities. It's like a checklist. This is, these are the important things to focus on. This is, what, this is how you frame the issue, and based on that framing, this is what you know how to do. So this thing about being open all the time, that leaves, leaves you without defense, leaves you without protection. Kind of throwing you back on yourself without any guide. Any other comments? Okay, here's another one. <clears throat> the wise heart is the heart that can tolerate the truth of not knowing. This is a similar point. At the root of suffering is a small heart frightened to be here, afraid to trust the river of change. This small, unopened heart grasps and needs and struggles to control what is unpredictable and unpossessable. But we can never know what will happen. With wisdom we allow this not knowing to become a form of trust. At ease, we celebrate the simple marvels of every day. 
we return to our own true nature and renounce striving and fear. Okay, almost every sentence in there is against the Pali Canon. Um, the whole the idea of not knowing. The Buddha never taught bare attention, he taught appropriate attention, which means bringing a certain framework to the changes of life. And the second issue about the form of allowing not know, knowing to become a form of trust, okay, that's heedlessness. Just saying, okay, whatever it is, it's going to be okay. That doesn't, again, that leaves you without protection. Celebrating the simple marvels of every day, that's novalis, romanticizing the world. Trying to find beauty and marvel in the simple details. Um, renouncing striving and fear. I mean, fear is basically, has its unskillful expressions and it has its skillful expressions. I mean, you, you should be afraid of doing harmful things. You should be afraid of giving in to unskillful mind states. And striving is right effort. There, there, is an, there are stages in right effort where you just wait and watch. And the other, other parts of the striving which require that you actively do something. The Buddha makes that distinction between times when you have causes of suffering that will go away only when you just sit and watch them. Kind of things that are embarrassed to take the full gaze of your attention, and they go away. There are others that, no matter how much you sit and gaze at them, they're not going to go away. And then you need instructions on what to do, how to how to breathe, how to frame the issue to yourself, what perceptions to change, so that you can actually get beyond them. So there's work to be done. Here's another passage on the goal as leading in uncharted directions. The fundamental spiritual confrontation of human life involves the realization that we've been thrown into this world without any choice, only to look forward to the prospect of being expelled at death. The sheer, the sheer sense of bafflement and perplexity at this situation is crucial to spiritual awareness. To opt for a comforting even, or even a discomforting explanation of what brought us here or what awaits us after death severely limits that very rare sense of mystery with which religion is essentially concerned. If my actions in the world are to stem from an authentic encounter with what is most vital and mysterious in life, then they surely need to be unclouded by either dogma or prevarication. A truly agnostic position is not an excuse for indecision. If anything, it's a power catalyst, powerful catalyst for action, since in shifting concern away from a hypothetical future life to the dilemmas of the present demands the precisely kind of compassion-centered ethic advocated by Shantideva, who was a later Mahayana philosopher. Okay, basically saying, trying to, the, sh the very rare sense of mystery with which religion is essentially concerned. I mean, he's talking about trying to get a sense of the sublime, and kind of have that sense of openness of, I don't know what's going on, um, and leaving it there as kind of the, the, the ideal situation to be in. Again, from the Buddhist point of view, that's leaving you with a lot of ignorance. For him, for the Buddha, you know, the, the sense of the sense of sublime that would equate with Sangwega is something that motivates you to find a way out and actually do something to take some concrete actions to get out of this, rather than keeping you there. And again, we're not here for an authentic encounter with what is most vital and mysterious in life. We're trying to solve the problem of suffering. Another passage. Okay. When he came to the end of his road without success, the Buddha sat down to reflect. At this point, a wonderful realization arose that showed the path to his enlightenment. 
He remembered himself as a child seated under a rose apple tree in his father's garden. He remembered how in that childlike state a natural sense of wholeness and sufficiency was present. Seated as a child, he had already experienced the calm clarity and natural unity of body and mind he was seeking. After remembering this profound sense of wholeness, the Buddha changed his entire way of practice. He began to nourish and honor his body and spirit. He remembered that he could rest in the universe rather than fight it. He realized that awakening is never the product of force, but arises through a resting of the heart and an opening of the mind. Okay, yes and no. Um, you can't force nirvana. You can't force awakening. But it wasn't going back to a childlike state of oneness. That's not, that's not the solution. It's, it's a oneness that's actually created through conditions and created through specific focusing of the mind. And even that was not what he was seeking, it was the path that would lead him to what he was seeking. In the actual story, it's not, he's not going to honor his body and mind. He realized, I just have the strength to do that after starving myself for six years. I've got to eat in order to get the strength, in order to attain that state of concentration. But this gives the idea that well, you're trying to refer, re- return to the oneness that we lost when we were children. Um, when we look at the readings later on, the Buddha has some particularly sharp words to say about the idea of returning to a childlike state. So all of these are cases in which it's very obvious that Romantic Buddhism is moving away, away from what the Buddha actually had to teach. Now, when you point this out, there are Romantic reasons for justifying it, which is the next. Okay. 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 First is the principle that all great religions teach the same truth. And if the Pali Canon is not expressing that truth, we better get it too. Okay. Okay. Here it is. The experience of our true self is luminous, sacred, and transforming. The peace and perfection of our true nature is one of the great mystical reflections of consciousness described beautifully in a hundred traditions by Zen and Taoism, by Native Americans and Western mystics, and by many others. So in other words, because all these other people are talking about oneness, the Buddha must be talking about oneness too, and it's all the same. When these qualities of Buddha nature and personal self are combined with a deep realization of the emptiness of self, we can be said to have fully discovered the nature of self. This true self is both unique and universal, both empty and full. True emptiness is not empty, but contains all things. The mysterious, excuse me, the mysterious and pregnant void creates and reflects all possibilities. From it arises our individuality, which can be discovered and developed, although never possessed or fixed. The self is held in no self as the candle flame is held in great emptiness. The great capacities of love, unique destiny, life, and emptiness intertwine, shining, reflecting the one true nature of life. You wonder if they have a, you know, one of those computer generators that just kind of turns out this stuff? You, know? <laughs> you have the, the generator for, you're talking about the, the generator for Kant, that you can just push a button and it will create some Kantian sentences for you. There's the postmodern one that creates postmodern sentences. There's a Shakespearean insult one that creates Shakespearean insults. <laughs> okay, he's talking about, okay, we're here trying to find the true nature of self, is what this passage is actually saying. And that no self, the not self teaching should be basically understood as an attempt to find what our true self is. Um, again, moving it in the direction of what the perennial philosophy would say is, is, the, is the issue. Um, another reason that the, the changes are justified is through what are called the psychological laws of the religious quest. Um, the first law is you need an untrammeled open, openness, not a, oppressed by texts or by archetypes. For example, 
The images we've been taught about perfection can be destructive to us. Instead of clinging to an inflated superhuman view of perfection, we learn to allow ourselves the space of kindness. Fear of being unspiritual puts up walls, isolates our heart from living, divides the world so that part of it is seen as not holy. These interior boundaries must be dissolved. There is an underlying unity to all things. All are part of a sacred whole in which we exist, and in the deepest way they are completely trustworthy. If we do listen to and welcome all parts of the self, we will find that they enrich our garden as compost. In other words, don't listen to what the religious texts say about what is holy or unholy. Just be open to your own personal experience. So, in other words, put the text aside and just go immediately to what feels as something that will give you greater holiness. I've always had a problem with the idea that the entire universe is holy. I mean, where are you going to go to the bathroom? <laughs> I mean, you've got to have some places where you can go and some places where you don't, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So, one. We, the, the Pali Canon basically is saying can be oppressive to us because it puts filters on our, our sense of oneness and sense our, our, our deepest inner sense of receptivity and creativity. Two, there's the principle that each person's religious experience and expression has to be unique. Here's some quotes. No one can divine for us exactly what our path should be. All the teachings of books, maps, and beliefs have little to do with wisdom or compassion. At best, they are a signpost, a finger pointing at the moon, with a leftover dialogue from a time when someone received some true spiritual nourishment. We must discover within ourselves our own way to become conscious to live a life of the Spirit. Religion and philosophy have their value, but in the end all we can do is open to mystery. Um, so again, the idea that by opening the mystery, that's what your expression will come naturally from that, rather than learning from the text. And finally, the idea that religious teachings are expressive of a mood. They're not descriptions or prescriptions that can be followed. At best, they can be read as myths. Um, you see this particularly in the tre treatment of the, uh, the story of the, the Buddha and Mara. Where, you know, the story where you know, after the Buddha's awakening, Mara comes and still appears to him occasionally. And there are some writers who will say, okay, we have to see this. We can't really believe there was a Mara there. We have to see this as parts of the Buddha's shadow that still, even after his awakening, come up and disturb him with doubts and that kind of thing. And what this basically is, is an attempt to, we've got to maintain our sense of what happens in the world, even at the expense of the idea that there could be a complete awakening. In other words, Put aside the idea of complete awakening, but the, uh, because we need to preserve our idea that there really no, is no such thing as Mara out there. So we're holding on to some of our presuppositions, but this is the cost. Okay. Here's, here's a couple passages. It's never a matter of trying to figure it all out. Rather, we pick up these phrases and chew them over, taste them, digest them, and let them energize us by virtue of their own nature. And even these ostensibly literal maps may be read around, better as if they're kind of a poem rich in possible meanings. In other words, you don't look to the Pali Canon for specific advice, you just kind of let it kind of flow over you and give you a, a nice feeling that you may or may not resonate with. That's, that's the best they say that these texts can do for you. That's what they say. And then finally they say, another reason for changing the Dharma is because this is the law of the development of a religion as it goes into a new culture. The texts themselves were culturally determined Religions need to change with the time and the culture. Here are two passages. 
or actually three passages that go on that. Even the most creative, world-transforming individuals cannot stand on their own shoulders. They too remain dependent upon their cultural contacts, whether intellectual or spiritual, which is precisely what Buddhism's emphasis on impermanence and causal interdependence implies. The Buddha also expressed his new liberating insight in the only way he could, using the religious categories that his culture could understand. Inevitably then, his way of expressing the Dharma was a blend of the truly new and the conventional religious thought of his time. Although the new transcends the conventional, the new cannot completely and immediately and completely escape the conventional wisdom it surpasses. Um, another one, this strongly held view, which is that Buddhism should not change, seems a bit odd in a religion that also teaches that resistance to all pervasive change is a root cause of misery. And that's, got, that's basically got it wrong. The Buddha didn't say resistance to change is misery. It's clinging to changeable things is misery, which is a different thing. You can cling to change, but the Buddha's trying to get you outside of that. Okay, they're saying that resistance to change is the root of misery. Now, the Buddha doesn't say resistance to change is the misery. By holding on to something, the act of clinging itself is, contains suffering. And clinging. clinging. Okay, resistance is when you're, you know, if you didn't resist, this would basically say if you give in to the change, you're, you're okay, then there's going to be no suffering. Which is not what the Buddha was saying. He's basically saying it, it goes a lot deeper. If you are, even when you are subject to change, there's still an element of stress that goes on. I mean, the, only, the only true escape from suffering is to find something that's totally unconditioned, from his point of view. In other words, he's not saying just go with the flow and you'll be okay. You understand that? Okay, since all schools of Buddhism arise from conditions, they share the very nature of the condition of things they tirelessly describe as transient, imperfect, and empty. This is true even of the original Indian form of the Dharma at the time of Gautama himself. To say that Buddhism is empty is to recognize how it is nothing but an emergent property of unique and unrepeatable situations. Now the term emergent property means that it's something that's there in matter and will come out just as matter evolves. Such an insight into the nature of things is entirely in keeping with the central Buddhist understanding of the inescapable contingency of existence by teaches them about it. This core insight into contingency emphasized how everything emerges from a shimmering matrix, excuse me, shimmering matrix of changing conditions and is destined to change into something else. In this way, the non-essential vision of the Dharma converges seamlessly with the historical and Darwinian evolutionary understanding of life. In other words, you know, because Buddhism itself teaches, talks about change, then we should accept the fact that things are going to change. What this begs the question is, of course, is that which changes still leave the essence of the teaching intact and which changes are going to make it impossible? You read a lot in studies of the way Buddhism has changed as it comes into America, and they almost always, even though they point out the enormous changes that are being made in the way it's taught, will end up by saying, well, this is just the way religious traditions are, so grow up, learn to accept it. And again, it begs the question, well, some changes actually are helpful in making it easier to express these, the same truth in a new language. And other changes wipe out the possibility of actually getting to the essence. And as we said earlier, because the romantic, these romantic things keep you within the framework of becoming, 
learning how to teach you how to stay in this changing world with a minimum amount of conflict, um, they're actually closing off the idea that there is an essence or that you can attain it. So they really do get in the way. And because when they're teaching, teaching trust, they're undercutting the primary motivation, the Buddha said, which is for its skillful action, which is heedfulness. So both sort of intellectually and emotionally, they're cutting you off from the Dharma. Any thoughts on that? Just going back to the the original group mm-hmm. of romantics, mm-hmm. um, is there um, rather than an argument, is there a, a presentation? Say, um, I, I guess hypothetically, although it could be applied mm-hmm. to um, a state where, uh, like, a defensive nature hasn't entered. So, so uh, there's this original thought, this original romantic thought. Um, say somebody who, uh, an arahant or somebody, sotapanna, entered that group. Is there an argument that could have been presented or a presentation of the Buddhist teachings mm-hmm. that could have penetrated that romantic thought at the time where it would have taken them out of or beyond you know, that self-enclosed circle. Okay, well, you'd have to point out the fact that open up the possibility that there is a state that is outside of the flux of time. And, um, okay. Some of them had actually been reading Heraclitus. Oh. He was talking about you know, how all the universe is all flux. Um, and you'd have to say, you know, there is a possibility outside of this. And then from that, if you can get them to actually listen to you, I mean, this was the Buddha's problem back in his days. I mean, is, there, is there some place that you can step outside? Okay, and then it'd have to be through the force of his personality, the force of his look. He would have to look trustworthy so they might be willing to listen to him. But they, you know, they were so... I mean, the thing about these, these thinkers is that even though you know, some of them ended up being poets or authors, they all had a philosophical education. Schlegel actually, Schlegel and Schelling both taught philosophy at the University of Jena for a while. And all of them had learned how to basically rationalize and defend their thought in philosophical terms. And so could, could the presentation be made like the, the Buddha having one take the stance from where they are and basically get out of unskillful means into skillful means right. and then moving into release. Right, you have to first open the possibility of release and then say this, this is where you have to rethink it. That you're the state of oneness when you are one with the universe, that's not an unconditioned state, there's actually something that goes beyond that. So, so now we've come to the place where it's, it seems more embedded. It's a defensive like well, this way versus embedded, that but way. But on the other hand, it's, you know, most of us don't really think through our romantic assumptions. At least the early romantics thought them through. But we've just learned, we've kind of grown up with them, we've come to accept them without that much thought. Now for us, in, in some ways it's easier because they don't have any real moorings, a lot of these ideas, where you can start pr- 
trying the way and say, look, it made sense back then, but it doesn't make sense anymore. It also helps if the teacher has psychic powers. <laughs> I mean, this is how the Buddha was able to teach a lot of number of people in the beginning. There's that, you know, there's the example of the Gossip of Brothers, where the Buddha does all these psychic wonders, and the, the one brother says, you know, he's really powerful, this, this Gotama, but he's not an arahant like me. And the Buddha shows his psychic wonders and finally says, finally says, God, you're not an arahant. You're not even close to the way to arahantship. And that's what finally, you know, pulls the guy over. Then he's willing to listen. My teacher once said, you know, um, Americans are really stubborn. And I stopped and thought, wait a minute, how many Americans does he know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then he said, ouch, yes. <laughs> and he said, you really need psychic powers in order to overcome their pride. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure the Buddha might have tossed out a few psychic things to, to you know, dislocate them a little bit. Well, taking art, their idea of art, and bringing somehow a release out of that, that they did, they're, they're still in, in a state of of the, this becoming, could right. they release out of that? Can they, could they think of something that wasn't becoming? That's, well, again, you have to open up the possibility. Now, given their framework, they were kind of closing off all those possibilities, so you have to find it, you know, kind of a crack. And that would, I think that would vary from person to person. And so today's doing that... This is what I'm trying to do, is just open a crack in some of these beliefs and kind of look at them and say, well, these things are really strange. These things we hear and they just kind of go past us like, because it all sounds so normal and so familiar. I mean, th- I mean, in a way I'm kind of romanticizing, looking at the familiar as unfamiliar, but not as wondrous, but as really strange. You know? And this is one of the advantages of you know, learning about another culture or going to live in another culture and then coming back and you see, you know, America is a really weird place. Well, the beliefs I had when I was a child are really weird beliefs. You know. that's, when, that's when you can really say that travel has broadened you and that it actually can open up some possibilities that you didn't have before. Any other questions or comments? Mm-hmm. Mike? What would you say in response to um, someone who says that Nibbana is one or something like um, people are interpreting the Nibbanic experience um, in different ways, but then the experience is, you know, basically the same experience. Short, short, yeah. Basically the same experience. Okay, well, you would say, well, look into that experience, whatever, whatever it was that you're talking about and see if there's any effort that's needed to keep it going, if there's anything you did to bring it on, if there's any variation in the level of suffering or stress. And by that, by that level, not, you wouldn't really call it suffering, but there is a kind of an up and down in the level of stress. There's a really fine passage in Ajahn Mahabhava where he talks about how he believed that this, he had this state of the luminous mind. And not only was his mind feel luminous, but everything he looked at was luminous. 
This is kind of a glow and everything. And he kept thinking to himself, well, this must be it. As long as I maintain this, this is going to turn into nirvana. And then he finally realized, wait a minute, if it has to be maintained, it's not nirvana. There's something, and so then he said, what can I, where am I attached to this? What can I do to destroy that attachment? And so again, you know, there's, there's the pride that go around the idea of an attainment. You want to look into that. Um, there's just the simple fact that whatever state this is involves some fabrication, involves some intentional element to keep it going. Or if there's any variation in the level of stress, if you can look for it. The problem is that sometimes you have to look at it for a long, long, long time in order to see it. Which is why, as I said, the Buddha's two prerequisites for someone who came to study him was one, the person be honest, and two, be observant. He also has some rules about who it's worth talking to and who it's not worth talking to. Mm -hmm. And if the person is really attached to this, and the more you talk about it, the more entrenched they get, you drop it. There was an example when I was studying with a John Furong. He happened to be away at one point, and he had a student who was an Air Force general who had fought in the Korean War and came back and said, look, I've killed a lot of people. I want to be at least a stream mentor before I die. <laughs> you don't see many American men, thinking, uh, military men thinking like that, but that was his thought. And so he first he studied with a John Lee, and then after John Lee let, died, he went around to other teachers and finally came back to John Fung, built a little hut in the monastery and would come out there and meditate regularly. So during that period, there was one morning when I came back from my alms round, and he came up to me, last night was really big. And he had some technical term for it. I've forgotten exactly what it was. But it was one step away from stream entry. You know? Just one more little oomph and I'm there. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm happy for you, and, but I'm hungry. I need to eat now. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day it was right on the verge. You know, he was just really just over, overwhelmed. And so a few days later, John Fruin came back. And when he would come back from Bangkok, my job was to kind of unpack his bag. And he would ask me questions about what was going on so he could kind of catch up. And I would ask him questions about what happened in Bangkok. And so he said, well, what's happening here? And I says, well, Chode, that was the, the general's name, seems to be going off the deep end. <laughs> and John Furong said, you know, you didn't say anything about it, did you? I said, no, I knew that wasn't my position. He said, good, because if this person doesn't have, if someone has one of these, what they think is an attainment, and they don't have 100% faith in you as a teacher, the more you try to talk them out of it, the more entrenched they get. So you just leave them alone. And then he told the story of when a John Munn was alive, and there were a couple of monks who later became famous at John's after having genuine awakening experiences. But prior to that, they had a few false ones. And they would come to see a John Munn and tell him about their attainment. He wouldn't say anything one way or the other. He said, well, in that case, just kind of stay around here for a while. And you know, just being in a John Munn's presence for a couple of days brought them down. And he says, okay, if they have that kind of faith in you, you're fine. And just as he was saying that, but if, you know, if they don't have faith in you, don't talk about it. And just at that point, Chode was running up the stairs to tell John Fuang about his attainments. And he heard that last sentence. And he went and he bowed down at John Fuang's feet and he said, I am such a fool. He said, well, wow. <laughs> that was really impressive. <laughs> so if they have that kind of faith in you, then you can talk to them about it. Anything else? Yes. 
I have a question about the the wonders. Um, so, could wonders be used, you know, skillfully in certain ways? Say, some people want to use to cultivate wholesome emotions or something that brings some certain, you know, sense of stability. Maybe somebody's life was in some kind of chaotic situation. Well, definitely, the oneness is good as a part of the path. And when the Buddha talks about a kodipawa as one of the you know, unification of awareness which basically means that the oneness of the mind, of awareness with its object starts in the second jhana and lasts up through the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness. That's part of the path. That's part of right concentration. And it gives you that sense of wholeness, that sense of well-being, so that when you start taking apart your, your sense of self in other ways, you don't feel threatened. You've got a good, solid grounding a sense of well-being and oneness that comes with it. You don't feel threatened by taking apart that sense of self. So it definitely is a part of the path, but you have to recognize it is path, it's not goal. It can take you there if you use it right. I see. So so it's not balanced by something else like a samvega that could be like a you know, dead end? Or okay, what's that sense of heedfulness? Okay, is this really the end? And the Buddha said that his... You know, that one of the secrets of his awakening was never resting content with his skillful attainments. He said, there must be something more. If, it, if there's still the slightest bit of suffering, there must be something more to be done. So that, that, that's why the whole attitude of heedfulness is really important. It keeps you going. Question over here. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the romantics uh, believe that the world is basically going the right direction mm-hmm. and then uh, you, so that you can basically trust it. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you compare these with like in, in Buddhism I mean we, we trust there's a law, uh, the laws of karma mm-hmm. in the world so which to me basically says in, in this world even though it's chaotic there's some order. Yeah. Well, you, you, you have to have trust in... Well, the law of karma tells you, on the one hand, you have to be very careful about what your actions are. You can't trust that whatever's upwelling you is part of the universal force that's moving toward greater perfection. So it's a different kind of trust. But this trust, the trust in karma, is what you know inspires heedfulness. I've got to be really careful about my actions. I can't assume that every choice I make is going to lead us ever upward and onward. And, and you know the Buddhist picture of the universe is that it goes through cycles. It never really goes anywhere. It just comes around and around and around. In fact, we're in a, we're in an age of decline, <laughs> as far as he was concerned. In uh, the laws of karma, doesn't have uh, another aspect, which is, you know, even if we see a lot of like uh, injustice in mm-hmm. the world, we kind of leave it that to be taken care of by the you laws know, of karma. Doesn't necessarily mean the world is going in a better direction. That's true. It means that things are just going to get taken care of, but maybe not in this plane. Maybe some other plane. You know, when certain politicians suffer the consequences of their actions, they may not be visible for us to see. There's a question in the back. I'm having trouble letting go of the concept of oneness or the 
search for oneness, not so much for myself, but because it could, it's a useful tool to counter uh, greed and hate. And the two situations I'm thinking of are uh, inequality, mm-hmm. us versus others. You know, we'll just grab, grab, grab and let the others go to hell, so to speak. Um, and the environment. If we were felt we were more, if more people felt that they were one with nature, they might care about the environment. So I guess I'm using it as uh, something that's a useful utilization. It's a tool. Um, okay, well, I'm with a greater goal of of ending greed and, and okay. uh, perhaps my delusion about this. Well, that that teaching the Buddha would have karma would take care of that. In the sense of you know, the teaching on karma and rebirth is basically what the Buddha would bring in to deal with those situations. On the one hand, he says, you know, if you see someone who's suffering from injustice or suffering from disease or other kinds of deprivation like that, remind yourself you've been there before, and you can go back there again. And the possibility that you might go back there again, how would you want to be treated by people who are in a better position? Here is your opportunity to do just that right now. So it doesn't depend on there being one with you. It's a sense that, okay, we're, we're changing places all the time in the universe. We might want to think about, okay, if I ever get stuck in that position again, do I want to remain stuck or would I like to have somebody come along and help me? Show some empathy. And the, Buddha's, the Buddha's motivation for empathy is that okay, whatever evil you do to somebody else is going to come back at you. So the interconnectedness here is not something that's in our being, but it's something that we create through our actions. And what kind of actions would you like to be connected to? One. As for the environment, do you want to be born in an earth that's you know, the result of what we're doing right now? No. Let's do what we can to fix it up so that if we have to come back, we come back to a good place. But if we don't believe in rebirth or don't care about it or are talking to other people who don't, mm-hmm. um, I'm talking about the educational value of trying to persuade others to treat others more kindly or treat the earth more kindly. Okay, when you're talking about things like that, you've got to figure out where is this person's place of mind and talk within, within the bounds of their, their worldview. But I really do think, you know, you know they have these, these programs where you go for a year saying, on the assumption, suppose you think they're going to die at the end of the year, how would you change the way you live your life? I think a really useful program for the next year is, suppose you really are reborn, how would you change the way you live? (laughs) Give it a try. (laughs) It's very useful. (laughs) Is it possible to say that oneness is a valuable thing as long as we're not attached to the oneness as as seeing it as the final... Exactly. Atta- attainment. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. Right here. I have a question about heedfulness mm-hmm. and appropriate attention. Would those be considered the same thing, um, or do they have different connotations? They have different connotations. Um, heedfulness is seeing that your actions have consequences, and that you've got to be very careful about how you act. Appropriate attention is giving you a framework to give you some idea of what a good way to act would be. You see, okay, where is the suffering? What can be done about it? 
what's causing it, what can be done to put an end to it. And then actually there are duties that go with regard to that. You try to comprehend the suffering, abandon the cause, develop the path so you can actually realize the cessation of suffering. So there's sort of built-in duties that go with the categories of appropriate attention. And then how can one apply appropriate attention into looking at notions of the self? Like if you're meditating and you think, where does my mind abide? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are, is that a useful way of looking at the self? Or? Yeah, that's one way. Of, when it's abiding there, then the question would be, to what extent is there any stress or suffering in this abiding? And if you can see it, then ask yourself, okay, what's the cause? What am I doing that's it? making the level of stress go up when it goes up and what allows it to go down? You're looking for the ups and downs and the level of stress so you can catch the action that goes along with it. We'll be talking a little bit later about the whole issue of self. Okay, should we take a break until three?